Welcome to Prism Bible, where we learn the Bible so we can live the story. God has a part for each of us to play, and to understand our purpose, we need to grasp the big, beautiful story that's unfolding in history. Join us today as we see the Messiah, the long-expected Savior of the nation, has finally come. The question is, will Israel accept Him? You're listening to Prism Bible. It's been over 400 years since the events of the Old Testament came to an end. 400 years of waiting and 400 years of difficulty. As the prophet Daniel foretold, there was upheaval among the kingdoms of the world. First, the Babylonians had conquered the kingdom of Judah. Then the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians, who were then conquered by the Greeks, until finally the Roman Empire conquered the Greeks themselves. In the midst of all this tumult are the Jewish people, the people who had formerly had a glorious kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, now returned to the land and rebuilt the temple for worship of the one true God. Yet the society in and around Jerusalem is a shell of its former glory. The temple they rebuilt is smaller, and the kingdom never flourishes to the extent that it did before the exile. In fact, with only temporary exceptions, Judah or Judea as it came to be known, was simply a subordinate sub-kingdom of a larger pagan empire. It's in this context, this time of difficulty for the nation, that we meet the long-awaited Messiah. Yet it's not a glorious reveal like we might expect. It's a reveal in utter humility. The Messiah is born as a little baby in a little town that King David had grown up in hundreds of years earlier. He's born in Bethlehem, just six miles south of the great capital city of Jerusalem, and yet far from the halls of national power. The Messiah is born in the lineage of Eve, of Abraham, and of David. He's the long-awaited seed of the ancient promises. Instead of being born in a palace among the highest echelons, he's born in a borrowed room and laid in a borrowed manger, a feeding trough for the animals. And he's given the name Jesus. With this humble beginning, Jesus grows up and demonstrates uncommon wisdom and knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, at one point when he's 12 years old, his parents find him in the temple in Jerusalem, sitting among the teachers. And he was listening to them and asking them questions, and all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. Already at age 12, it's apparent that Jesus will go on to do great things in the world. Yet it's not until around the age of 30 that he begins to reveal his identity to the public in earnest. Upon beginning his ministry, he calls 12 men to be his closest disciples. These men are to follow Jesus and live out his teachings and instructions. In fact, that's what it means to be a disciple to follow the rabbi and to live out his teachings and instructions. So Jesus and these twelve disciples begin traveling around the land, spreading the message of Jesus. And the message that they preach is essentially this, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Said another way, Turn away from your sin and back to God, 
because the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus was telling the Jewish people that his kingdom, the kingdom of Messiah, was about to be established. The everlasting kingdom that God had promised to David was coming soon. In fact, many of Jesus' teachings concern this kingdom and what it's like, what it's not like, and who will be in the kingdom. To illustrate this, we'll turn to one of the most famous conversations in the Bible, a conversation between Jesus and a Jewish leader named Nicodemus, where Jesus explains the nature of the kingdom to this very learned man. Let's listen in as Jesus explains the kingdom to Nicodemus. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. From this short interaction, you can tell that Nicodemus is perplexed at what Jesus is saying. After all, the Jews of the day were expecting that the Messiah would come and conquer their enemies and have a glorious kingdom on earth. Jesus here is beginning to indicate that the entrance of the kingdom of God into the world will actually happen in stages. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that begins within people and eventually manifests in the world when the literal geopolitical kingdom is established by the Messiah. Beginning with Jesus, God is establishing a kingdom people via a spiritual new birth before the physical kingdom becomes actualized. The people, born again by the Spirit of God, would eventually rule in an established kingdom on earth. First would be the gathering of the kingdom citizens, and second would be the kingdom itself. Jesus continues to spread this message, and the general populace of the land likes his message and many of them recognize him as a great prophet or a great teacher. However, it's among his twelve disciples that they begin to recognize him as this long-awaited Messiah. This is only part of Jesus' identity, though. Not only did Jesus demonstrate that he is the Messiah, but he also showed that he is God in the flesh who had come to save his people. He said that he was God's son and that God was his father, making himself equivalent with God. And he proved his power and his identity by performing amazing miracles. He turned water into wine, healed a man born blind, multiplied a small meal to feed 5,000 people, walked on water, and raised a man from the dead. The Jewish Messiah was even greater than many of the people had hoped for. And yet, despite his power and his kingdom message, he wasn't well received by much of the religious leadership of the day. They rejected the idea that God could become man. Instead, they thought he was blasphemous against God and against the law that God had given the nation long ago. So these leaders decide to launch a plan to put Jesus to death. Blind to their own Messiah, they seek his blood instead of crowning him king. Soon he's betrayed by one of his twelve disciples into the hand of these religious leaders. Jesus is sentenced to death by crucifixion, and he would hang on a wooden cross 
to die the death of a condemned criminal. It's at this point that we should recall what the prophet Daniel received centuries before. He learned that when the Messiah came, he would be cut off or killed. And while this was mysterious at the time that Daniel learned it, the picture becomes clear as we look at Jesus on the cross. The Messiah had not come to simply reign on David's throne, but he'd also come to fulfill a much older need of humanity. Jesus was becoming the substitute. He was taking on the death penalty deserved by all, so that he could open the way for blessing to all. Remember, Abraham was promised that one of his seed would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Jesus on the cross is opening the way to this blessing. He's opening the way by taking on the death penalty for sin that we all deserve. Instead of animal substitution, where an animal was killed to temporarily take the penalty of sin in the place of people, like the law of Israel required, well, Jesus on the cross was accomplishing the perfect, permanent substitution. He was becoming the perfect sacrifice for sin of the world, so that he could grant the blessing of righteousness to all who believe in him. Furthermore, by people placing their sin on Jesus by faith, they receive the perfect righteousness of God by the same faith. In this way, those with faith in Jesus become like Abraham, who had faith in God and was granted God's righteousness in response to his faith. This is a monumental event. Jesus with his death on the cross isn't suffering for something he did wrong. Rather, as God, he is suffering for the wrongs of all humanity so that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus can enjoy the blessing of renewed fellowship with God. He was paying the death penalty on our behalf so that we could live with God again. His death was an opening, an opening back to the garden where we can walk with God again. Because of Jesus, the separation of death can be undone with life everlasting taking its place. It's fitting that just as Jesus was born in a borrowed room, upon his death, he was placed in a borrowed tomb. Fitting because Jesus didn't need either one permanently. Though Jesus died for the sin of the world, he did nothing wrong. Though he took the death penalty, it yet had no power over his perfect righteousness. And so on the third day after the crucifixion, the borrowed tomb is emptied. Empty, because Jesus is no longer dead. Some of the women who had followed Jesus were the first to discover his missing body, and soon they have an encounter with the risen Jesus. They go back to the disciples and tell them, but the distraught disciples scarcely believe them until they see Jesus for themselves. Eventually, Jesus appears among them, and they recognize that their teacher who they had followed for three years, whom they had witnessed die on the cross, was standing in front of them alive. And then the disciples begin to wonder, what does this mean? Was the kingdom of God coming now? Had they come to the end of history? Little did they know that the good news of the kingdom was only beginning to advance. Join us next time as the disciples receive a mission from Jesus, a mission that will change the world. Don't forget to download the Prism Bible app, our mobile app to help you learn the Bible. 
In addition to this podcast content, we have Bible readings, summaries, and quiz questions on the app to help you get the most out of every lesson. Prism Bible is a project of the Bible Literacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping you learn the Bible.